Welcome to the Rebel and Be Well podcast, hosted by Krista Rimel, registered nurse, founder and CEO of Lifestyle Medicine Retreat Center, The Point Retreats, which is located amidst the woods and waters of northern Minnesota. During her podcast, Krista will interview experienced and successful healthcare professionals on outside-the-box health topics. During their time together, they will have in-depth discussions with trusted medical and health and wellness leaders to discover what they do to stay well using traditional and non-traditional health practices. Experts will share not only what, but why they practice the holistic lifestyle medicine they do and the science that backs their less than mainstream ideas. You'll hear the real and relatable personal health struggles of healthcare providers and what rebelling outside of the traditional healthcare system did to better their lives, careers, and health. Tune in to listen and learn the mind-body-spirit practices from conventional health experts who share hope and inspiration from honest stories of healing while reflecting the scientific-based evidence to wisely guide the inner rebel inside you. It's time to rebel and be well. Welcome Dr. David Katz to the Rebel and Be Well podcast. It's an incredible honor to share this time together today. Many have likely heard you speak on well-known national platforms such as Anderson Cooper, CNN, and Good Morning America. To give an appropriate introduction, I want to take a moment to share your bio with our audience. Dr. David Katz earned his BA at Dartmouth College, his MD at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and his Master's of Public Health from the Yale University School of Public Health. He completed sequential residency training and board certification in internal medicine and preventative medicine public health. Katz is the founder and former director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, president and founder of the nonprofit True Health Initiative, and founder and CEO of Diet ID Incorporated. He's a fellow of the American College of Preventative Medicine, the American College of Physicians, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and the Morse College, Yale University. The recipient of numerous awards for teaching, writing, and contributions to public health, Katz was a 2019 nominee for a James Beard Foundation Award in Health Journalism, has been widely supported nominee for the position of U.S. Surgeon General, and has received three honorary doctorates. He holds multiple U.S. patents, has over 200 peer-reviewed publications, has published many hundreds of online and newspaper columns, and has authored, co-authored 19 books to date, including multiple editions of leading textbooks in nutrition, preventative medicine, and epidemiology. His career-long focus has been the translation of science into action for the addition of years to life and life to years. On the COVID pandemic, he has advocated consistently for a policy of total harm minimization by means of risk-stratified interdiction efforts. Katz has presented at conferences in all 50 states and in multiple countries on six continents. He has been recognized by peers as the Poet Laureate of Health Promotion. He and his wife, Catherine, live in Connecticut. They have five grown children. 
So David, before we dive into our conversation together, I want to express my gratitude to our mutual friend and colleague, Chuck Runyon, for introducing the two of us. Chuck is my business partner at The Point Retreats and better known as the CEO of Self-Esteem Brands, which is the parent company to global brands such as Anytime Fitness, Wax in the City, Bar Method, and Base Camp Fitness. Over this past year, Dr. Katz has served as Self-Esteem Brands lifestyle medicine expert advisor. I'd like to give a shout out to Chuck for playing a role in making this interview and podcast episode possible. So David, as I read your bio, I was just taken aback by your plethora of expertise and wisdom. And it's kind of left me as the interviewee going, where do we start? Do we talk prevention? Do we talk pandemic? I would just say, if you're willing to, let's just start at the beginning, specifically at the beginning of your career in medicine. You're a well-sought-out expert in internal medicine, lifestyle medicine, epidemiology, and there are really so few physicians with the wingspan of expertise that you have. So as a starting point, can you tell me more about what drew you into medicine initially? Absolutely. Krista, it's great to be with you. Thank you for the kind intro. As you're reading my bio, I'm thinking, dear God, nobody but my mother wants to hear all of this. Uh, but thank you for, for soldiering through it all. Yes. And as for Chuck, amen. Chuck is terrific. I love him. I love working with him. I thank him for bringing us together. And, and we've done some of this ourselves where we've had these conversations recorded, done webinars together. And, sure. and each time I come away thinking we are brothers who somehow got separated at birth. <laughs> I and love just that. Died ourselves again. Um, He's a terrific guy. And what a year to find yourselves connected. It was a good year to connect. Yes, it was. Absolutely. And uh, and bright, bright things ahead of us. So yeah. So now all three of us are part of the same family and that's terrific. So medicine was something of a path of least resistance for me. My father's a cardiologist and, you know, I think as many kids do, you, you look on with interest to see what your folks are doing and you love and admire them. And, you know, the family business calls out to, to many of us. And, and in this case, it certainly did for me. Uh, you know, I, I, it was interesting because growing up, I kind of viewed my dad as two people. Hmm. He was work dad or he was weekend dad. And he was only occasionally weekend dad because he was on call every other weekend for hmm. years. So, you know, there was work dad even during the weekend <laughs> right. and then every other weekend there was weekend dad and and you know that's when we hiked and skied and did all that good stuff but you know I, I watched quietly as he had these phone calls and and clearly was dealing with intense things and life and death decision making and I mm-hmm. thought wow that's that's a real contribution. I I wonder if I could do something like that someday. Mm -hmm. So family business, I think that really was the big influence. There there were other factors regarding the general choice. I was a really good student. And, you know, back then there was a joke about three job choices, doctor, lawyer, or Indian chief. I I thought about uh, (laughs) law and Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have the bloodline, you know, for any any role in Native American tribal doing. So I was down to two options uh, and, you know, went, went with medicine. But really things got interesting after I got into medicine. I, I think the, the, the better part of the answer to your question, because you, know, you mentioned lifestyle medicine, preventive mm-hmm. medicine, all of that, that was a byproduct of my training in medicine. And you also mentioned wingspan. And in many ways, I would say you know, it's more a matter of eye span or field of vision. Uh, there, there's a famous parable, uh, the blind men and the elephant. It was six men of Indistan to learning much inclined who went to see the elephant, elephant though all of them were blind, mm-hmm. that each by observation might satisfy his mind. 
the first approach, the elephant happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side at once began to ball. God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. And you get the idea. Each right. of the others takes hold of a different part and mistakes the part for the whole. I've always had a penchant for the big picture. And that, that's a little bit unusual in science. Uh, scientists tend to be reductionistic. Uh, certainly the, the most successful scientists, those who go on to things like Nobel Prizes, are very reductionistic. Their insights are often about the tiny part of the tiny part of the tiny part of the thing that they've studied exclusively for, for decades. I'm a big picture guy. Uh, epidemiology called out to me, patterns called out to me. So even when I was training in internal medicine and in the hospital for over 100 hours a week, and I, and I was certainly very committed to learning everything I needed to know, all, all of the reductionistic details about taking good care of individuals, mm -hmm. I couldn't help but see the big pattern. Mm -hmm. And the big pattern, Krista, when you're in the hospital is that easily eight out of 10 hospital beds are filled with people who have stuff they never needed to get. Mm -hmm. and, and that just kept calling out to me, there's got to be a better way. All this heart disease, all of these strokes, all of this cancer, all of this diabetes, complications of diabetes, kidney failure, infectious disease that we know how to prevent, on and on it went. I thought, you know, I am learning how to be one of the king's horses and one of the king's men. And the simple fact is we will never put complete vitality back together again. We can, we can forestall death. We can patch people up. We can make them better than they would be without what modern medicine has to provide. But completely intact vitality, the only way to have that is to go back in time 10 years or 20 years, fix their lifestyle, and never let this stuff happen in the first place. Mm -hmm. I've got to be involved in that. And so it really was my training in internal medicine that made me decide, okay, yes, I want to be there to take care of people in their hour of need, but I want many fewer people coming to that hour of dire need in the first place, and I've got to be involved in that. So I went on to train in preventive medicine and the rest, as they say, is history. Well, that is clearly a connecting point between you and Chuck and I in being visionaries who would like to see people spend more time in health than in sickness. And uh, I think it's clearly a, a unique position as a physician to have that big picture because you can get kind of stuck in that, you know, treatment method of looking at patients versus the big picture of how could I change the trajectory of their health? The whole system has done that. I agree with you. And, and with all due respect to my many clinician colleagues who, who mm -hmm. do a great job taking care of sick people, I imagine many of them never even stop to think. We call it a healthcare system. It's really a disease care mm -hmm. system. And, and in fact, a healthcare system, the collateral would not be hospital beds. It, it would be gyms. Right. I mean, it would be right. anytime fitness. And I, I, I do have a fantasy uh, about the long-term transformation of our disease care system into a true healthcare system. I actually wrote a piece a few years ago for Forbes uh, from disease care to healthcare, monetizing the revolution and the idea that you know, little by little, if we invest in wellness and, and have financially viable models for doing that, and I think we do, that you know, ultimately the, the acquisitions of restaurants that, that serve healthy meals mm -hmm. and catering services and meal kit companies and gyms. And ultimately, the acquisitions will be the, the behemoths mm -hmm. of what is currently the disease care system as they read the writing on the wall and say, we actually have to diversify our portfolio. We are finally starting to prevent people from getting so much heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, all that horrible preventable stuff, lung right. disease. 
And so now, actually, we're, you know, we're not going to make our money filling hospital beds. We're going to need mm-hmm. to own many fewer hospital beds mm-hmm. because we don't need so many. Right. We, we'll need a surge capacity in case there's ever another pandemic, but we don't need a standing uh, allotment of hospital beds that we needed before. But we should own restaurants that serve highly nutritious food. We should own gym mm-hmm. facilities. Uh, and imagine you know, when, when those deals are brokered, the cost essentially goes away for the individual who otherwise maybe couldn't afford a, mm-hmm. a spa, a retreat, a, a gym membership, mm-hmm. uh, because their employer you know, has built it into their benefits. If there's third party coverage, that they cover it because it's actually far more cost beneficial to pay for wellness than for the, the consequences of right. disease. Do you get a lot of amens in your podcast? Because I kind of want to <laughs> say like, okay, amen, I or like high five it. you. Uh, I like amens. <laughs> amens are always good. Okay. Well, I'm going to say amen to that one. You know, one of the most disturbing things to me as a nurse when I was in patient care was the Abbott Heart Institute in Minneapolis, which is a well-known heart institute and, and a fabulous facility. And everything that I think you and I are saying, we can have a mutual understanding that it's not a criticism of any of our colleagues or any of the traditions in healthcare. It's just a lack of kind of system-wide acceptance of that we need to embrace wellness into healthcare to put the health back in the care. At Abbott Northwestern, there's a McDonald's. That was the choice of restaurants for families to eat or for food to bring their patients. And I was just irate. I'm like, we're in a heart institute. Are you kidding me? Is this the best we can do? Well, lo and behold, you know, my vision was maybe they should put an anytime fitness in the Abbott Northwest Hospital instead of a McDonald's. But at least the McDonald's has subsequently left in the last couple of years and been replaced by a better substitute. Amen, sister. I yeah. totally agree. Yeah, they should have an anytime fitness and not a McDonald's. Uh-huh. So I totally agree. And and actually, that's that's been more the norm than the exception. The Cleveland Clinic had a had a McDonald's in their lobby, and then the coronary care unit was one flight up. So mm-hmm. you know, you know, have your double cheeseburger and mm-hmm. and then take the elevator because you'll never make the <laughs> right. stairs one flight up, and the cardiologist uh-huh. will see you now. Yeah, right. Yeah, pretty ridiculous. But, but a couple of comments. First, that obviously needs to change. And so, you know, the, the hypocritical elements in, in preaching one thing, practicing another. Second, we really do need a systematic transformation from a disease care system to a healthcare system. Third, that enterprise is more cultural than clinical. And just a quick pivot, Krista, the, the places around the world where people live the longest have the least chronic disease own the most vitality and ultimately go gentle into that good night in the fullness of time, they don't credit it to doctors or nurses or other health professionals. It just happens. They're called the blue zones. They've been described for us all by Dan Buettner at National Geographic. You know, five places around the world, people routinely live to be 100. They, They don't get dementia. They don't get diabetes. They don't get heart disease. And they die in their sleep at 102. And by the way, they've weathered the pandemic better than the rest of us as well. It's not a clinical enterprise. It's a cultural enterprise. Their culture makes eating well the default. Their culture makes daily physical activity the default. Their culture makes getting enough sleep the default. Their culture makes mitigating stress the default. And their culture makes good social interaction, community, mm-hmm. the default. And, and those are the key elements. In, in if, and, and they don't smoke very much, so you know, less exposure to toxins than the rest of the world. Those are the key elements. I, I've, I've described as past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, the six-cylinder engine of lifestyle as medicine is feet, forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love. Mm-hmm. So feet, physical activity, forks, dietary patterns, fingers, never do this. <laughs> okay. Get it, getting enough sleep. 
so never bring a cigarette to your mouth and right. don't drink too much either. Getting enough sleep, managing stress so we don't have too much, and then strong social relationships. Yeah. We, we are social animals. We need one another. The Blue Zones get that formula right, but it's not done clinically. However, I think that clinicians, health professionals, should be in the vanguard of the cultural revolution that we need in the U.S. and in other parts of the modern world. So, you know, we're the tip of the spear. We, we lead the way and say, look, we are in disease care, but we, we have a, a broader vision that encompasses health care. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's got to be a culture-wide enterprise. And we need a revolution to get us there. The last thing I want to say quickly, we have both said, you, you're a nurse, I'm a doctor, and we both said, with all due respect to our clinical colleagues, because we do very much respect what they do, we've done it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did patient care for 30 years. Mm-hmm. I was supposed to give a keynote address at Harvard at a lifestyle medicine conference I think this was uh, six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Everything I think was yesterday turns out to be 10 years ago. So mm-hmm. who knows how long it was? It was a while. And uh, I have a horse and I have uh, dogs. and I'm outside in the woods all the time, hiking and riding. Yeah. And anyway, I, I obviously was bitten by a tick and didn't know it. And mm-hmm. I wound up with anaplasmosis. Uh, it was horrible. It was unbelievably horrible. horrible. I wound up uh, in the, the uh, Yale New Haven emergency room with, you know, having a CAT scan and a spinal tap. And anyway, ultimately I got admitted to yeah. Griffin Hospital uh, to get IV antibiotics. And I, I made a quick recovery. But at the time I was supposed to give this keynote address on lifestyle medicine at Harvard, I was in a hospital bed hooked up to an IV. So I did the talk. I did the talk did. via, I did it via Skype. We oh weren't all, word. this was pre-pandemic, but I gave a totally different talk yeah. than I would have given. And I said, look, I, this is a beautiful opportunity to remind us all to be humble because yeah. lifestyle is the best medicine for maintaining health. But you know what? Today, mm-hmm. I'm really thankful for antibiotics. Thank mm-hmm. you very much. They mm-hmm. give me good drugs. And, right. and I think you know, the important message here is nobody gets a guarantee. You can do everything right. You can, you can still be hit by a bus. You, you can still be bitten by a tick. You know? So I, I think you and I are saying the same thing. The, the broader vision is about healthcare, mm-hmm. but there's a critical place in that for disease care and for what clinicians mm-hmm. currently do. And we salute that. Absolutely. Sick care systems are incredibly important. When you say sick care system, it's not to put a negative connotation around it because there's a lot of illnesses that people get very sick and it's not always due to lifestyle. I mean, there's just clearly things that happen in life that can make you ill. I think where our passion lies is those things that can be preventable. How can we promote those as a physician, as a nurse, and then also just as a culture, as you mentioned, to really promote that. So it's not such an effort. In America, it is an effort to be healthy. Um, There's a lot of bad choices around every corner versus the blue zones. And Dan Buettner is born and raised in Minneapolis. You know, I watched him and read his books and Quite frankly, it makes me want to move to Costa Rica or or Italy. And (laughs) I'm like, I shouldn't sit in Minnesota anymore. It's bad for my health. Hell yeah. Um, It's absolutely true. And and exactly right. That's how it works best. The solutions are all around you. You don't have to work so hard. And, you know, this is why we bog down in the U.S. and have for years in public health about mm -hmm. debates. You know, what is it all about Mm -hmm. policy or is it all about personal responsibility? Well, the reality is that the choices people make every day are support subordinate to the choices people have in their culture. And if you surround people with bad choices, they're not going to make good ones. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in particular, the disparities, the, the inequities mm-hmm. in our country make the good choices extremely difficult, mm-hmm. if not impossible, for the people who most need help 
getting to better choices, getting to better health. So, you know, the, the deck is stacked against us. And we have no evidence from anywhere in the world that a whole population gets healthy by relying on personal responsibility, despite the fact that their country runs on donuts and multicolored mm-hmm. marshmallows are part of a child's complete mm-hmm. breakfast. I mean, that's just not happened. So we need cultural responsibility and personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. And when they work in tandem, everything can change. Absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. Can I do it like a second? Amen. Have you gotten two? <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think that there's a, you know, a there's not a limit on, on amens in a talk. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> okay. I love it. <laughs> Let, let's, let's just call this a sermon and yeah. we can do as many amens as we want. I um, worked with patients and was in charge of a healthcare system in terms of diabetes and endocrinology. And one of the first things I did is I said, let's get patients and families in the kitchen. Let's talk about the food because all of our medications timed around food and food has the capacity to really make and drive a lot of change, obviously, in patient outcomes. But yet we keep it so distant from our care plans. And, you know, unless it's tangible and you're working with it and you're in front of it and talking about it. It's just hard for people to translate, you know, talk into action unless we all start to live it together and support one another in that. So I love that you continue to bring that forward. And can I ask how your colleagues have embraced kind of your approach to care? Has it been a lot of pushback for you? And they're going, oh, you know, there's David doing his thing over there in the corner on that prevention stuff. Or they're like, you know what, he's actually, what he's saying is something we could apply here. What kind of response have you gotten from your physician colleagues? Both, I think. Uh, you know, for years I did integrative medicine because I was looking for partners in this mm-hmm. venture where we could leverage lifestyle as as our primary recourse. And I found very few takers among conventionally trained docs, but I found uh, a lot of enthusiasm among naturopathic physicians. So mm-hmm. in 2000, uh, we launched a clinic at Griffin Hospital Integrative Medicine Center where I, as a trained internist and naturopath, were working together, seeing patients jointly and then conferring, what have you got? What have I got? What are the best options? And working on that model. So many in the staunchly, conservatively conventional medical model looked at that and said, no, no, that, that's going to take us into the realm of what they call woo. You know, right. the, the, the stuff that's not, you know, we don't have enough meta-analyses to justify any of that right. nonsense. Um, you know, sure, it's good for people to eat vegetables, but, you know, un- un- until there have been enough RCTs showing that, you know, what the outcomes are over 40 years, mm-hmm. no, no, we're going to put people on statins instead. So some resistance, but very gratified to say a lot of enthusiastic support as well, so much so that the American College of Lifestyle Medicine is the fastest growing medical college in the United States by far. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's it, it's increased its membership by an order of magnitude in the last several years. And it continues to grow and to spawn sister organizations around the world. So it's a movement. Mm-hmm. And, and generally, you know, if you are visionary at all, what it means is you're seeing past the bend in the horizon the stuff that's still in shadow for for lots of others. You know, if it's in plain sight, everybody sees it, everybody agrees, it's no longer visionary. It's just, you know, it's what's out there. In order to be visionary, you're looking for the next thing. And and that's going to be uncomfortable because it means you're you're going to, wait a minute, I want to get into those shadows over there. Well, those are shadowy places. They're lonely. They're scary. You know, if you turn out to be right, and, and nobody's right all the time, but when you do get it right, 
uh, essentially you wind up illuminating a new space that attracts many others. And I am by no means the first. I followed in the footsteps of, of many luminaries who came before me, but you know, was a relatively early adopter of the value proposition of lifestyle as medicine. And now it's really taking off. And what that means is young people coming into medicine now, into the health professions now, are encountering this as just a part of the default, the part of what's normal. And, you know, you mentioned we, we, if we're going to talk to people about, you know, timing meds around their food, why don't we talk to them about their food? You know, culinary medicine's really taken off. It, it, back when I trained, we, we, we were told we had learned nutrition because we did biochemistry. Mm. Well, you know, <laughs> how did that help me know what to tell a patient to have for dinner? Well, it didn't at all. Right. Nothing about food, nothing about recipes, nothing of any practical value, but right. about biochemical pathways. <laughs> Would you like me to explain what your biochemical pathway of that meal yeah, is? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I'm your, I'm your guy for that. But you probably didn't get very many amens to that. None. And, None. you know, I, I have absolutely no idea what you should eat, but, you know, <laughs> right. biochemistry, I'm your guy, yeah. uh, and which is never quite true because I wasn't all that great at biochemistry, to be honest. But now they do culinary medicine where, you know, health professionals in training meet mm -hmm. with a chef who knows about nutrition and they cook a great meal together and they leave. Everybody gets the laminated recipe to take mm -hmm. out, you know, make this, enjoy this, live this, share this, pay it forward. It's practical. It's beautiful. It's an educational revolution. It's a pragmatic revolution. And it starts to narrow the divide between sick care. Okay, yeah, mm -hmm. I do want to be able to take care of people with diabetes. And healthcare, I actually don't want to give them a drug that's actively fixing the damage their diet is actively causing. I'd actually mm -hmm. like their diet to support their health. And then if they need a drug too, I'm okay doing right, both. Right, right. And, and absolutely, there are times, you know, that you, you have to use both. Um, right. We at the Point Retreats, we actually have culinary chefs with backgrounds in health and wellness come and cook. And we have a culinary RX for clinicians course. And a shout out to M Health Fairview because they sponsor it. They give AMA CME credits for it. And I think people just assume physicians and nurses should know a lot about nutrition. And certainly many do. I mean, you are an expert on it because you have taken this upon yourself to learn and master um, as an expertise. But for many, I mean, what is the latest statistic? I think it's like 15 to 20 hours in medical school historically that you get nutrition training and it's very low. And so it's not that it not for always on a neglectful part of the physician's, um, you know, care plan. It's just that you do what you know, you do what you've been taught, you do what you're comfortable with. There are many layers to the problem. We've covered some of them, Krista. So one is not much training. Mm -hmm. uh, so not much self-efficacy, not, not much sense of, of uh, confidence or competence. But the other is, you know, imagine if we were prescribing medication and the minute people stepped outside our, our door, they were bombarded with cultural messages telling you, don't take that, don't listen, mm -hmm. do this instead, this is more fun, this is better, and, because that's what happens with food. We give mm -hmm. advice about healthy eating and people step outside into the world and, you know, America right. runs on Dunkin', Coca-Cola is the national hydration beverage, and we actively peddle multicolored marshmallows to six-year-olds as part of their complete breakfast. Yeah. Michael Moss is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist, wrote Salt, Sugar, Fat. His new book, Hooked, is, is due out imminently. 
he wrote a New York Times Magazine cover story, The Extraordinary Science of Addictive Junk Food. And mm. it tells the story of how all the big food companies hire teams of scientists, mm -hmm. give them functional MRI machines to work with, and marching orders to design food people can't stop eating until their arm gets tired from lifting it to their mouths. Mm -hmm. And so we give people advice about portion control, but they're walking into yeah. a willfully addictive food supply where, in fact, it's not just willfully addictive, but scientists get an end-of-year bonus if they can design more foods we, yeah. can't, we can't control the portion of. So, you know, that's just not fair. So, it, you know, it, it's, a, it's a bigger problem than the clinics, than mm -hmm. clinicians. But it, it is a new day. And, and, you know, I think the work you're doing is beautiful. The idea of involving chefs, these, these partnerships between health professionals and chefs are beautiful. So the Culinary Institute of America, they, they do menus of change. They have a partnership with Harvard. Mm -hmm. I, I really love this whole movement. Yeah. Uh, culinary medicine is an idea uh, whose time has come and um, not a moment too soon because, you know, I, I signed up 30 years ago to try and help uh, improve the trends in obesity and chronic disease. And it, it hasn't worked so yeah. far. You know, if you're honest with yourself as a lifestyle medicine mm -hmm. proponent, you look around and say, we're losing the war. We need new methods. Mm -hmm. These are some of those new methods. Yeah. Having, yeah, having more people, you know, kind of in the trenches of that war with you and, and certainly, you know, the culinary artists and chefs are great ones to work alongside with you. And, but kudos to you for being a pioneer in that work. And I guess you're, you know, that's probably what would coin you a healthcare rebel. You know, we talk about how we can kind of rebel against being caught in this sick mindset, like sickness is inevitable, chronic illness is inevitable, and and really trying to look at how we can live, as your quote says, with more life in our years, um, you know, living well. And so you must be kind of a healthcare rebel in your realm when you made that transition, you know, into preventative and lifestyle medicine, because it's it's not the norm. But thank you for, for being a pioneer and kind of a soldier of that cause, because we need incredible physicians like you to really um, lead the way. To be clear, I don't know that we said this, Krista, we've, we've been talking about, you know, the need for system change and how important it is. But, you know, I want everybody listening to understand how great the opportunity is mm -hmm. for you to mm -hmm. add years to your life, life to your years, and to share that with the people you love. I, I completed my training in preventive medicine in 1993, so almost 30 years ago. And within a few months of my graduation, a paper came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association that really changed the trajectory of my career. It was called Actual Causes of Death in the United States mm. by Mike McGinnis and Bill Fagey, two preeminent epidemiologists. And what was interesting about the papers, they weren't looking at the obvious. So people are dying of heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, emphysema. They said, no, 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 those are not really causes. Those are effects. What we want to know is mm -hmm. what's causing all of that. Mm -hmm. What's causing the stuff that winds up going on a death certificate as cause of death? Because those are effects of things that we should be able to fix. And they enumerated that set of factors which explained premature death. And the leading three by far, that, that just by themselves accounted for 80% of the premature deaths in our country every year, were tobacco, poor diet, lack of physical activity, and then mm -hmm. there was the rest. But here's what that means for you, mm -hmm. if you're listening in. If you get just a few things right about lifestyle, if you don't smoke, if you do what you can to optimize your diet, and if you find a way to be physically active every day, I mean, not only will you feel much better, have better energy, be more productive, have sharper uh, cognition. I mean, just everything about it is better. And, and it's not delayed gratification either. You really start to feel better immediately right. when you use lifestyle as your remedy. 
but you can reduce your risk of ever getting any major chronic disease by 80%. I mean, imagine if there were a drug, new right. drug approved by the FDA, available to you, inexpensive, affordable. By the way, your family can take it too. There's a family prescription plan. Mm -hmm. It's in bountiful supply. And if you take this drug once a day, you will reduce your risk of ever getting heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, dementia, mm -hmm. or dying prematurely mm -hmm. by 80%. I mean, who wouldn't get in line for right. that prescription? Well, right. it's available to you. So the value proposition of this cannot be overstated. Yeah. And, and we have the knowledge. We just mm -hmm. have to convert it into the power of routine action. Absolutely. That is such a powerful statement. And I hope it empowers people as they hear that. You know, there's so many pieces of care that you and I have been involved in and we've been bedside that's more driven by, you know, kind of clinician, you know, kind of dictating what's needed. But this is something every person, every patient, every human can do on their own accord. It's not always easy. And first steps are really not always easy. I'm sure both you and I have had patients with really challenging stories that don't make that first step an easy one to take, but it's doable. And don't forget that outcome, the potential outcome that you just said, you can reduce your risk of death by 80% if you just take some small, simple actions. The, the, the reward is incredible. Yeah, vitality really is the gift mm -hmm. that keeps on getting. And again, the fact that you can share it mm -hmm. is good in two ways. First, you get to pay forward the thing that, that we all value most. And if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. Well, the people you love, you don't want to just you know have a nest egg to pass on to your mm -hmm. children. How about you share vitality with mm -hmm. them? How about you share healthy living, healthy practices? There's no greater gift we could give them. But the other value is that in unity, there is strength. If you do this with and for the people you love, you're not on your own. You're not mm -hmm. going on a diet. You're not saying, oh, woe is me. I have to go to the gym and exercise today. You're saying health is a family value. Health right. is and vitality and, and, and energy and dynamism. These are things I want to share with the people I love. And they're in it mm -hmm. with me. Mm -hmm. And they're supporting me. And I'm supporting them. And it's more things we can do together. Mm -hmm. It's it's a, it's a gift and a blessing we can pass back and forth to one another, and it just gets better the more you share it, which, right. again, you don't do with pharmacotherapy. So a tremendous opportunity. And I, I agree, Krista, completely. It is hard. Uh, it shouldn't be hard. In the blue zones, it's not hard. In the blue zones, mm -hmm. it's normal. But there are more and more assets available to people to make it easier. We do need policy. We do need government to play its role. Uh, but we need enlightened people like you. We need people like Chuck, you know, people who are involved mm -hmm. in doing everything possible. What, what are new ways to make physical activity fun, enticing, available? What are new ways to, to disseminate information and, and knowledge, understanding of not just the value of eating well, but the opportunity, my, my wife is a brilliant cook and, and has a recipe site, mm -hmm. Quizonicity, and our tagline there is love the food that loves you back. Mm -hmm. That opportunity, you don't yeah. have to choose between the pleasure of good food and the pleasure of good health. You can have mm -hmm. both, but you need some skills to get there from yep. here. Well, you're in the business of helping people get those skills. I applaud it. I'm in the business of helping people get those skills. I think it's important. You know, it's a journey and, right. you know, we're not going to, we're not going to snap our fingers or click our heels together three times and, and get there, but, mm -hmm. but we are on our way. 
Well, and I would say your partnership, your and Chuck's partnership, is a positive example of how we can offer more to people, right? So you're combining the preventative health space and the medical space. And you're saying, we don't have to be in our own silos anymore and each doing our own thing. Like, let's work together. Let's try and support one another to accomplish a better, you know, state of public health. And it's never been more important, clearly, than now, given the last year that we've all encountered. You know, you might be one of the few people who can understand what I put up on a Facebook post that was in a little bit of a rant, which I don't usually do, but it was the first day in March of 2020 when I saw the news report that the first case of COVID had arrived in Minnesota. And it went from, you know, I was a little uh, kind of, you know, stressed about hearing this. And then the commercial came on and the commercial was Kentucky Fried Chicken's new fried chicken sandwich in between two donuts. And I was like, really? Are you going to really just talk about COVID, which in other countries we clearly understand is is deeply impacted by obesity and diabetes and hypertension? But then you're going to throw out this KFC new sandwich on me as a good thing. And I was so irritated that I put it on a Facebook and everyone was kind of like, I don't even know what she's trying to say. They're not the Why, same well, thing. Why is she talking right, about that? Like, no, no, no. So amen again to you. Yes, they're, they're so relevant. So this has been the the thread of my commentary on COVID. And I, I kind of got sucked into the vortex of COVID. I'm not an yeah. infectious disease epidemiologist, but I'm trained in epidemiology and, and the general expanse of preventive medicine. So I'm qualified to opine. And I opined uh, early in a number of columns, one in Medium that was read half a million times. And mm. anyway, I wound up uh, publishing an op-ed in the New York Times, mm-hmm. which was then picked up by three-time Pulitzer Prize winner Tom Friedman and channeled in a number of his columns. And the rest, as they say, is history. Mm-hmm. I, I got pulled into the vortex and I, I was drinking from a fire hose for quite a while. But and my very qualified was, to do so, <laughs> by <laughs> the way. Yeah. But, but much the same commentary. Mm-hmm. You know, When we look at the global epidemiology of COVID, what we see is this is not a one-size-fits-all threat. Mm-hmm. This is, it's a predator, if you will. A virus is a predator. It's coming for the weak and the frail, as predators always do. Mm-hmm. Now, the elderly tend to be weak and frail. So, you know, if you're 90 years old, we're going to have to protect you very carefully because it's coming for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents are both 81. It's coming for them. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's also coming for younger people who have hypertension, type 2 diabetes, coronary artery disease, severe lung disease associated with smoking, uh, other major medical conditions, severe obesity, and all of that, or nearly all of that, is preventable with lifestyle. Mm-hmm. There are many arguments I've been making throughout the pandemic. We should have focused on total harm minimization. In other words, minimize the harms of infection, also minimize the harms of social determinants. Some mm-hmm. people are more likely to be hurt by unemployment than by infection. We right. need to think about both. Right. Essentially, you know, it, it's not disrespecting the virus. I fully respect the mm-hmm. virus. But any way somebody is hurt is bad. Mm-hmm. Any way someone is protected is good. And the only way to to know how best to protect people is to know where are their vulnerabilities, all right. of their vulnerabilities. So total harm minimization. And the next critical point was this is not a one-size-fits-all threat. Mm-hmm. Some people are at very high risk of really bad outcomes. Some people are at very low risk of bad outcomes. Kids are more at risk of being hurt riding a school bus than from COVID at the population level. Isn't and we don't shut amazing? down yeah. we don't shut down schools nationwide because there's a risk riding a school bus, but mm-hmm. there is, mm-hmm. and it's a bigger risk than COVID. So we, we should have risk stratified the population and used that to inform policy. But the single biggest blind spot was exactly the one you described. So I completely agree with your rant. We basically came into this pandemic 
forgive me for for speaking bluntly fat and sick mm -hmm. we're as a population we're fat and sick we mm -hmm. have hyperendemic obesity hyperendemic type 2 diabetes uh, you know basically a scar from a coronary bypass surgery is, is a rite of passage in america mm -hmm. you're supposed to have one it seems you know none of that needs to happen right with daily physical activity avoiding toxins like tobacco and eating optimally almost all heart disease would go away almost all diabetes would go away almost all obesity would go away and what i've been saying is there has never been a better time mm -hmm. for a let's get healthy together campaign because mm -hmm. ordinarily we're trying to talk people into the advantage of being healthy and saying, you know, it, it will be better over time. Mm -hmm. But right now we can say it's better over time. Yeah, mm -hmm. vitality is the gift that keeps on giving. But it's acutely better at this time because the minute you start exercising daily, the minute you start eating better, you improve your immune system responses, reduce your risk for COVID. And yes, the benefits accrue over time. So you'll be more protected in a week and in a month right. than you will be today. But the benefits actually do start today. Mm -hmm. And there's been almost no national dialogue about the critical importance of fixing our chronic health as an mm -hmm. acute defense against the pandemic. And I think one of the great explanations for the tragic mortality toll in the United States, there, there are a number of them, but one of the key contributors is we came into this pandemic weak and frail and fat and sick, mm -hmm. and it preyed upon our vulnerabilities. And those vulnerabilities have never been more vividly on display. And mm -hmm. so there's never been a better time to do something about them. Right. And the best way to do that is together. Our lack of health outcomes in our country in particular, even though we're one of the wealthiest nations. And, and you and I are both very familiar with those statistics. And I, you know, I don't know if our, the audience knows this, but generally speaking, if you compare the U.S. to I think it's 11 or 12 other countries of the same socioeconomic status, we're in the bottom <laughs> tier of almost every single outcome. Like we except except expenditure. We expect, spend the most. Expenditure, yeah. <laughs> right. We spend, we spend the, most the most to get the least. For yeah. the get the least. Exactly. Yay, so team. I know <laughs> that does not get an amen, by the way. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. What, what it, but whatever the opposite is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> To your point, we've kind of exposed our nation's lack of health, which we know, and I think we feel a little paralyzed on, on, you know, how do we change it? How do we fix the trajectory of this? And if nothing else, you know, can come from this year of the pandemic, I hope it's some more energy and some more dedication to that as, as citizens, as healthcare workers, and as a nation that we can position ourselves so when the next new novel virus shows up, which it will— we will be in a healthier state. And and it doesn't mean, I, I like you, you know, Dr. Katz, I have a deep respect for the virus and um, certainly don't poo-poo it. And, you know, I recognize there are the stories of the younger and the healthier who have, you know, been stricken with it in a more significant and severe way. But, you know, that's medicine. Like we're kind of used to outliers happening. There are children that get cancer and they shouldn't. Um, right. There are things that happen in medicine that just don't, fit the normal circle of life. And and that's happened. And those are scary. And, and I don't downplay those. But to your point, I love your risk stratification model. And, and if you haven't looked at it, I would do a deep dive because it's incredible, along with the great Barrington Declaration. I don't know if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about that. And I did sign it, by the way, back last mm, summer. Sure. Yes. Yeah, so, so lots of important stuff to unpack there. So total harm minimization really did evolve into a platform. And if you want to read all the details and see all the supporting materials, we've archived them on the pages of my nonprofit, the True Health Initiative. So that's at truehealthinitiative.org. There's mm -hmm. a link to our COVID materials right on the homepage there. Okay. 
And, and again, the basic idea was, look, th there's more than one way for people to get hurt. All of them matter. And the best way to develop and, and launch policies is to understand risk differentials, who's at risk for what and protect mm -hmm. them. And you're, you're quite right. You know, there have been scary things. Young people have died and, and all of that really is important. But as you say, young people get shockingly rare cancers mm -hmm. and, and, you know, suffer terrible and bizarre accidents. And if every one of those made national news, we'd be freaking about freaking out about all of that every day. Right. You know, 1,800 people die in the United States every day of heart disease. Imagine if every one of those stories was, oh my God, right. another person died of heart disease and another. If you got national news about 1,800 deaths a day, you would think the, the drinking water has been poisoned. Right. You know, right. this you know, that basically that, you know, some other foreign power has contaminated, you know, the, the nation's air supply or, you know, something. Mm -hmm. No, it's just, it's business as usual in America. The problem with the coverage of COVID is it was new and shiny. And so the media had a feeding frenzy. They, mm -hmm. they basically wanted to tell us about every outlier, every anomaly, every horrendous case. And the problem with that from the perspective of an epidemiologist is you are always inclined to ask, what's the denominator? Mm. This is terrible. This is tragic. This family has my deepest condolences. But if this is one case out of 10 million, mm -hmm. the average person watching this story is at you know, vanishingly remote risk. They're more likely to be hit by lightning while being eaten by a shark, but they're not getting that part of the story. And, right. and that is the reality. I've dug into many of these these tales of woe about young people and and medical students and you know they, they're terrible. Mm -hmm. But you you read to and in fact my most recent column was on this very issue. You have to read to paragraph seven, eight, nine, or twelve for the other shoe to drop and find out you know this five year old had lymphoma. Mm -hmm. I mean, they don't, it, it doesn't mm -hmm. figure in the headline. It doesn't figure in the first three paragraphs. You know terrible mm -hmm. loss to COVID. COVID can kill children too. And eventually you get to the point where the, you know, this, this poor child was on chemotherapy for a cancer right. or the, you know, the aspiring medical student dies and you get, you get the heart rending story. Paragraph 11 tells you this person had a severe case of lupus or mm -hmm. severe obesity and type two diabetes. And, and that doesn't make it okay, right? but it's critical to understanding that we're not all at the same risk. And, and this is something I, I take not just personally, um, and professionally, but have lived through. Because, uh, you know, my argument was not everybody is at risk of a bad outcome here, and, and that mm -hmm. needs to inform our policies. And, you know, I think that could have spared us many of the, the social harms that we've experienced and protected everybody from the virus. Mm -hmm. And we have this conversation at an interesting time, Kristen, you know this because we were chatting mm -hmm. before we, we hit record. Uh, I'm just recovering from COVID. My household got it uh, over the holidays. I, I wrote about how we think we were exposed. It actually was an encounter with a, a homeless person out on the street. So, you know, just sort of a bizarre yeah. happenstance that would have been very hard to protect against. Sure. But my, my son, my adult son got it. And two of my other adult kids were home over the holidays. They got it. And my wife got it. And I got it. And, and I'm now a month out. And in many ways, my course is, is a perfect representation of the truth in the middle, you know, because mm -hmm. there was the liberate my state crowd that was acting like, hey, this isn't serious. This is mm -hmm. this is just the flu. I've had the flu mm -hmm. and the flu sucks, to be honest. But, mm -hmm. you know, you get the flu, you get over the flu. I'm a month out from COVID and I keep thinking I'm fully recovered and then I'm not. You know, mm -hmm. then I have a day when I have terrible headaches and I'm completely exhausted. I completely lost olfaction. Okay. It, it turned off like a light switch. It did for the other four in my household too. Sure. Uh, my kids, my, my, by the way, my young kids, because yeah. youth is a great tonic, had mild cases, fully recovered, got their old fashioned completely back. My wife, uh, my contemporary, 
uh, got sick about a week before me. She's mm-hmm. more nearly fully recovered than I am, and okay. her sense of smell is about 80 to 90% back, but not. she still has these headache days, fatigue days too. And I'm at a month out, and I've got about 30% of my sense of smell back, so it's mostly mm-hmm. gone still. I'm expecting it to come back. I, mm-hmm. I like good wine. We're talking mm-hmm. about good food. I need to have my sense of smell back. It's a quality of um, life but, thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's coming. I mm-hmm. think it'll be fine. But so on the one hand, I'm a good case study and you've got to really respect this virus. It's no Mm -hmm. joke. On the other, I'm also a representation of if you come into it healthy, it's not going to put you in the hospital. Mm -hmm. It's much less, you know, I'm 58 years old, but I'm a lifestyle medicine expert. I practice what I preach. I had a mild illness. I Mm -hmm. didn't need a doctor. I was never in any danger. There was never a question about needing medication or the hospital. And, you know, I'm I'm getting over it. I'll be fine. Right. Um, So it it, it speaks to both truths and the importance of, you know, being willing to find that place in the middle where science and sense come together as opposed mm-hmm. to gravitating to the poles. You know, it, it, it really is absolutely valid for you to mm-hmm. say, hey, we cannot be talking about a historic pandemic associated with cardiometabolic liabilities and then peddling fried chicken between donuts mm-hmm. and acting like that's okay. That's, right. you know, can, can you spell hypocrisy? I mean, that's just right. wrong. Right. Well, thank you for being open about your experience with COVID. I appreciate you being willing to share that. It's been interesting, although I think as you know, we've moved along now to, you know, 2021, along with COVID being part of that change of the year, it's still with us. We're becoming more accepting of it and we're hearing more people who have it. I'm grateful for you sharing that as someone who's really committed your life and you're a very busy person, five children, I mean, multiple degrees, busy uh, clinical practice and busy, you know, you've authored how many books and, you know, and you still find time to protect your health for this very reason. You know, you may not have said, oh, COVID's going to come someday and I want to be in a good place, but we know right, things right. happen. Life happens. Things You're going to get exposed to things. And and yeah. all the work you've done all these years set you up to recover better than most. I mean, the hard part, you know, I've struggled with is, you know, the, our, the recent study out of UNC said, you know, what, 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. Well, that means 88% of us are not, which is a little scary. And not being metabolically healthy puts you at greater risk. But the bottom line is, and and I love Alt-Middle. And that's why I love Z-Dog. And I loved your interview on Z-Dog. And I love listening to you because I'm a very Alt-Middle person. (laughs) And I can see both sides, which is sometimes a blessing and a curse. But but you are a testimony to, yes, COVID's a real thing. But yes, if you're a healthy individual, you can recover without having to be intubated. (laughs) <laughs> or right. put in the hospital. Exactly. And we can respect the virus, but also respect the concerns people have about their livelihoods and mm-hmm. job security and supply chains and, and on and on it goes. We, we can respect both. Right. Yeah. I mean, here's to the alt middle. Amen to that. And, um, you know, it's bizarre that the middle has become a radical place. Right. But that's, that's, you know, that's a testimony to how polarized we are. Mm-hmm. No, no, you have to choose a tribe, you know, in, in one of the extreme opposing corners and, mm-hmm. you know, nobody's allowed in the middle. Well, that needs to be fixed because, you know, again, there's often valid arguments right, in every point of view. And almost all of us wind up, you know, having some bathwater along with the baby and, and being willing to learn from others. You know, we, we never learn when we're the one preaching, we learn when we're quiet listening to someone else. So we've got to be better at listening. You know, I, I, I now attach to my email signature, wherever dogma 
is barking, even mm-hmm. if it's our own dogma, <laughs> we'll have a very hard time hearing one another. So we, we, we need to turn down the drama, turn down the dogma and, and yeah. do a better job of listening. And there are tremendous uh, opportunities mm-hmm. ahead of us if we do that on every front, you know, preventing the next pandemic, getting through this one, mm-hmm. optimizing the economy, fixing climate change. You know, I mean, really what we're capable of, just look what we did landing that rover on Mars, what, mm-hmm. what human ingenuity is capable of is incredible, but it requires collaboration and, and yeah. solidarity and a willingness to work together and, and, and channel the hive mind. In the pandemic, there has been a great opportunity. So, you know, Chuck and, and others in, in the fitness industry have been working through the challenges of gyms can be open, gyms can't be open, close your mm-hmm. gyms, open your gym, you know, all of that. In many ways, you know, they're experiencing challenges and opportunities. A crisis is a dangerous opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. So there's danger because you have to deal, you have to adapt to the new, but the opportunity is, well, we can conjoin what we've been doing in real space with what we do in space like this, you know, right. the virtual meetings and, you know, what, what's the collateral we can get out to people to empower them when we can't be in the same room with them? Mm-hmm. What can we teach them? How can we share? And, you know, there's more and more telehealth and it's not just telemedicine it's mm-hmm. literally telehealth mm-hmm. and one of the things that I, i'm working with with chuck and anytime to address is you know what are all the things we can do to to not just be anytime but to mm-hmm. also be anywhere Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you can come to the gym and work out there, mm-hmm. great. But, you know, mm-hmm. we want to be with you anytime, anywhere we can get to you. We can be in the same space, but we can also get to you virtually. And right. the transformation of the fitness space, of the culinary space, nutrition space. It, at my company, Diet ID, we're working to do the same thing with nutrition. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of opportunities. And, and, you know, I think some of the transformation from in-person meetings for health to virtual, some mm-hmm. of that's going to stick. And yeah, that means we have to adapt, but it also means we do have new opportunities. So this collaboration invites me to work with really thoughtful, creative people to explore that domain. And I'm extremely optimistic about what we can do there. What a great time to be a voice for the fitness space, because as you and I both know, and I think both personally and professionally, we can attest to the powerful outcomes that we see when people start to move and move meaningfully with coaches and trainers and people assisting them, you know, to really make the most of their time in the gym or with activity. But, you know, it also uh, definitely just lends a hand to kind of validating how important that is for us to consider as medical professionals that we don't shy away from these topics with our patients and that we partner with people in the fitness industry to better improve health. We see people for a very short amount of time, coaches, personal trainers, they often get an hour or two a week with somebody, which probably sounds like a dream for you relative to what you're used to having to squeeze into 10, 15 minutes with a person or a patient. So we really need to do a better job of partnering all across the spectrum in, uh, you know, going from our acute care phase to our preventative phase um, and beyond in terms of getting someone back to baseline and better. I I agree completely. It takes a village to cultivate vitality. Our real world connections are now supplemented with these new and burgeoning digital connections. Mm -hmm. So there are new ways to define the bounds of that village, new ways to get together. Right. And again, you know, I mean, it's been, it's been a hard uh, reality check for us because we've had to do this in the midst of a pandemic, but, Mm -hmm. but some of what has ensued is beneficial, new ways to be that village, new ways to collaborate, new ways to reach people. And as I say, uh, you know, that's, that's the silver lining Mm -hmm. in the dark clouds of this past year. A lot of good can come from that. And that, that game is now afoot. I'm 
really delighted the opportunity to to collaborate with you the opportunity to work with Chuck uh, to be a part of that I do want to address one other thing with you because of your expertise and wisdom in this area you know speaking to our healthcare professionals now as humans not as the clinician experts, because they really have taken a toll in all of this. And this has been a really challenging time for them. And I want to be very respectful and mindful of that. And you went back into the hospital for a time during the heart of the pandemic. Uh, I went back a couple months ago and, and you see things a little differently when you step back in. And I'm, my hunch is you did too. And if you want to share any of that, that's wonderful. But my, my question for you is what would you say to your healthcare professional colleagues at this time, too, where they're really also suffering. My hunch is their health is really suffering in every holistic way. And, you know, how do we support them? You know, we we talk probably less about them than we do about the general public. And I think their health right now is really important because of the trauma um, that they've experienced. And it's not just because of the FaceTime goodbyes that, you know, are not really a normal part of how we usually say, you know, bring someone for, you know, tra- help them transition transition from life to death. But it's it's this noise of the world. Like we're so conflicted and they're really caught in the cross term of that. I made a comment to an ER doc. I said, it's almost like you're the Vietnam War soldiers. Like you're in this war in a different country that we all know is going on in the hospitals, but we're kind of like, don't want to talk about it anymore. We're done with it. A lot of conflict around it. And you come out and you look at the world and you're like, what is happening here? How do you feel like we could best support our healthcare professionals right now to recover from this? Well, two things. You know, first, we need to say thank you. And I think many people are doing exactly that and, and make sure that we're sensitive to the duress, the, the, the mental health burdens and, and are prepared to offer comfort because health professionals are humans. And mm-hmm. if you cut us, we bleed. So, you know, we need to be prepared to deal with those wounds. And then the other was just as you described, I volunteered a, a week on the front lines. I came out of clinical retirement to do that. Knowing a week is not much, it's a drop in the bucket. But if thousands do the same, we would be alleviating the burden of our colleagues who are on the front lines all the time. So, you know, I thought that was really important. But you're absolutely right. You know, you shouldn't have to kill yourself to promote the health of others. Mm -hmm. And so we do need more and better systems to help propagate health among health professionals, busy, hardworking people. And I think it it brings us full circle back to the notion that we need a, a culture that Mm -hmm. supports healthy living. So, you know, it's not the afterthought. It's not the thing you have to try to do after you've run out of every hour of your day, Mm -hmm. taking care of other people. Oh yeah, I really do need to take care of myself. We we need to make that more prominent. And there there are many reforms in medical education, health professional training that that are starting to point in that direction, but there's plenty of work to do. If anyone wants to find out more about you, what would be the best way for them to find you? So the one-stop shopping at davidkatzmd.com, it's a portal to everything I do. Mm-hmm. I mentioned the True Health Initiative, truehealthinitiative.org. My company is dietid, dietid.com. And my wife's wonderful recipe site is Quizinicity, like Cuisine City with an mm-hmm. I in the middle, dot com. Chris, it's been a great Wonderful. pleasure. I really look forward to part two and who knows, maybe even a part three at some point. So when I spoke with Chuck this week about our upcoming conversation, he said the two of us could talk for hours, which is clearly true. Maybe there'll be a part two of this podcast in our future, or like you said, part three. For today, I want to say how grateful I am for the time you shared with me today. I've learned a great deal, but most importantly, I've received a great dose of hope that we have physicians leading national initiatives with great wisdom, expertise, and the drive to move our country to rebel and be well. 
If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Katz, you can find him on the websites he's acknowledged earlier. If you want to learn more about The Point Retreats, you can visit us on our website, thepointretreats.com, our social media platforms, Point Retreats, on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thank you to all for listening today. We hope our podcast inspires you to find your inner wellness rebel and for you to rebel and be well. I hope you'll tune in to our next podcast when I'll be speaking with Dr. Suzanne Bartlett Hackenmiller. Dr. Suzanne is an MD and an OBGYN, integrative medicine physician who currently resides in Iowa. Dr. Suzanne is the author of a book, The Outdoor Adventures Guide to Forest Bathing, one of my favorite books in the Point Retreat Library. Dr. Suzanne has been quoted and featured in numerous publications and radio programs on the subject of integrative medicine and nature therapy. I hope you'll tune in to find out what we'll be doing in the forest next fall. You've been listening to the Rebel and Be Well podcast, hosted by Krista Reimer, registered nurse, founder, and CEO of Lifestyle Medicine Retreat Center, The Point Retreats, which is located amidst the woods and waters of northern Minnesota. If you'd like to ask Krista Reimel or one of our past or upcoming guests a question that will be aired on a future show, simply call 612-352-9177 and leave a message. Please know that when you leave a message, it may be used in whole or in part on a future podcast episode. Again, that phone number is 612-352-9177. Please hit subscribe on whatever podcast source you found us on and rate and review our show. We'd love to hear feedback. Rebel and Be Well is recorded at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Find them online at mnpodcasting.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast or those of the individual participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or policies of the Point Retreats, Minnesota Podcasting, or any other organization. All medical issues, concerns, diagnoses, medications, and treatments must be managed by your doctor. We do not replace any clinician's medical advice or treatment. Join us next time for Rebel and Be Well. Be Well.